Welcome to Sing Coach Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. Hi, Aaron and Jessica. Thank you so much for being on the show. Today, we are going to talk about imposter syndrome. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this. I went to the MSVMA Summer Conference, and uh, that's where I saw you present on this, and you've been doing this. Uh, this was That wasn't your first time presenting on this, so you get to talk about um, uh, sort of what the background of how you got into this is, but I'd love to start with who you are. So Jessica Tippett, am I saying that correctly as well? You are. Yep. Just like tip it over like a, a piece of paper. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So Jessica, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, my name is Jessica Tippett and I've been an educator for 19 years and I currently am the band choir and jazz band director for East Jordan Public Schools, which is a small town at the tip of the lower peninsula in northern Michigan. Um, our claim to fame is that we make all of the manhole covers that you see around the world. We have a giant foundry that employs most of our community. Um, I live in Petoskey, Michigan, and um, I am an oboe player by trade, but have recently started singing more, and I sing first alto in a community choir called the Little Traverse Choral Society. Nice. Awesome. Aaron? Hi there. Uh, I am Aaron Hotelling. I'm the band director for Gaylord Community Schools. I've been teaching for about 23 years now. Um, I live and work in Gaylord, love the community. It's uh, located right at the intersection of 75 and uh, 32, about 45 minutes to an hour south of the Mackinac Bridge, and uh, just love it up here. I love how you both talk about where you live geographically. Like, I, it's just really neat to me. Like, I live in this exact location, and you're giving history of your places and stuff, so that's cool. If this was on video, I would have held up the map. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Held up the hand and yeah. pointed. Yep. <laughs> that you, that's, that's usually pretty helpful. So, yeah. No, that's great. Um, so getting into the imposter syndrome. So I want to know, where did you get this idea to start doing this presentation? And, um, and what has that experience been like for you? So Jessica and I and a couple other band directors in northern Michigan were just having a conversation at uh, Middle School Honors Band, or excuse me, Middle School Solo and Ensemble Festival, and we're sitting there listening to people that we respect and think do a great job talk about things they wish they did better or things they wish they could do like other people did, and um, it became a pretty intense conversation, and about a week later, I texted Jessica and I said, you know, this conversation we had... Uh, could be something, and asked her if she wanted to do some research and present at the Michigan Music Conference if they'd have us, and here we are now. It was something, after these directors left the room, Aaron and I both looked at each other and we're like, you know, we've been teaching long enough now that it's just, you can kind of see the comparison game that we do as music educators, and it's, at the end of the day, it's kind of not worth it, because you've got to teach the kids that you have in front of you and match your educating your teaching to the kids that uh to the style of program that you have and we have a lot of diverse music programs not only chorally but in band and orchestra in our area we have 
small schools like mine where the middle and high school are in the same building and we have huge districts where there's multiple high schools and middle schools. So we, we have a lot of different uh, viewpoints of what a music program quote unquote should or shouldn't look like. Well, and, and can do you mind digging in a little bit more when you say, you know, we had an intense conversation? Because I'm really curious about what kinds of things were said in the room. You know, you don't have to name names or anything, but I, I just think that's a very interesting comment to make. The conversation was just some of us talking about, you know, what we see going on at our school. Uh, we'd say things about, like, um, retention of students or quality of literature we can perform with our students or um, the class schedules we have and, and just kind of comparing and contrasting all the different things that we can and can't do in our districts and what part of it is on us, what part of it is on the community or the schools or whatever else, um, that, the outlying factors in what we do. So we started doing a lot of the research for the, the conference session and some of the statistics that came out of the research that we did were staggering. Um, it's imposter syndrome is not just an issue with educators or music educators. It's very high in um, musicians as well. I think probably about 80% of musicians in the world experience imposter syndrome, mm. whereas a, a an average person would experience it maybe 65 to 70% of the time. So that that's a huge difference because our art that we do, the creative side of things is very subjective. And we feel like we need to do what everybody is trying to do to be successful rather than just catering things to our own program. Will you, um, will you define what imposter syndrome is? Sure. It's, it's just a feeling of not being, feeling like you're not doing enough or you're not good enough at what you do. In fact, our session title was called I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, just to steal from the SNL uh, uh-huh, skit. Uh-huh. And, and really, that's, that's basically what imposter syndrome is. We don't feel like we're good enough to do the job. We feel like we could do more, but we're not sure how. We feel unsure of what we're doing. Hmm. And so in your presentation, what are the different things that you, that you cover? Um, we talked about the different types of imposters. So there's a perfectionist, expert, natural genius, superman or superwoman, and a soloist. And these are all different categories. Um, I am a recovering perfectionist soloist. So I feel like success isn't satisfying because I didn't get the perfect result. I feel like I could have done better. And we've all left concerts feeling that way where mm. the kids do, they pour their hearts into the music and then you walk off stage and you're like, well, that could have been better on my end. I could have taught this better. I could have conducted this better. Um, and a soloist is um, feeling like you can't ask for help because that shows a sign of weakness. Um, and it took me probably until my sixth or seventh year of teaching to actually bring some clinicians in to work with the students in my program to just go to people that were smarter than me and say, hey, I need help with this. What do you do in your room? And not feel like people were going to rip my teaching certificate out of my hand and mm. kick me out of the room. Mm-hmm. 
Now, okay, so you just threw all these terms out, and I, I know I had never heard them before you presented, and they were all so fascinating to me. So do you mind going through each of them slowly just so people know, you know, and they can say, oh, my gosh, that is me or, you know, what they identify with? Um, and so I don't know if you want to trade off on that, but it would be really interesting to hear what each of these uh uh, types of imposter syndrome are. So Valerie Young wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, and that's where these five different things come from. And, you know, mm-hmm. so like, um, you know, well, Jessica, you take perfectionists since that's you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I talked about that, of just about feeling like everything you've done isn't good enough or you could have done more, or and you can't take a moment to revel in the success of what just happened and the kids pouring their hearts out on stage and you pouring your heart out right there with them and then thinking automatically about all the things you could have done better. And Erin, you talked about what your students do, you and your students do after um, concerts that kind of helps counteract that. So I've got a lot of perfectionists in my band. And so, you know, they're the kind of the kids that if 99% of the goal isn't met, then they fail. You know, or if 99% is met, that 1% means they failed. You know, so um, what we do is when we watch the f- concert, we celebrate the win. That's the way I, I've got a lot of athletes in my program, and I, I use a lot of sports metaphors. Um, so I say, you know, today we celebrate the W. We got the win. It was a good concert. We did great things. I said, we're going to watch it. You're going to hear some things, but it's not about that right now. Tomorrow, we go back to the game film. And we look at what we can do better next time. And uh, that's kind of how we deal with it here, is that we celebrate the success first, and then we go back to see what we can do better next time. The next kind is uh, the expert. And I, I struggle with this one, where you don't like to speak up or start a project until you know all the information or you're 100% qualified in your mind. And uh, that's a tricky one, um, because there's always something more to learn. So you've just got to start sometime. So that one I struggle with. And then the next one's another one I've had. A, it sounds cocky to say it, but natural genius is when things aren't easy, you're failing. There's a lot of things, you know, that people in this field, um, the music part of things may not have been easy, easy, but it was something that came a little bit naturally and they wanted to do the work for it, and they forget about all the work they did in the past to make it easy now. And so when they get a new challenge, sometimes it's a little trickier. And you see this a lot with, gifted kids if you have a gifted and talented program at your school a lot of gifted kids will give up if they don't get it on the first try because they're so used to getting it on the first try that they feel shame and they don't know how to process that so sometimes you'll see tears sometimes you'll see anger or frustration and we feel that as adults as well Mm. um the next one i uh, was soloist which i talked a little bit about a bit ago which is just feeling like you have to do everything yourself I always joke with my students to tell me if they need me to ask them for help because I say band director is Latin for control freak. <laughs> so it, <laughs> so I always I always say that's the soloist in me coming out is just I feel like it's not going to get done unless I do it. And mm. that's not the case because there's lots of people that want to help. And then the last one, yeah, the, the supermen or superwomen. Um, Megan, you know I'm married to one of those. Yes. That, uh, they'll push they will push themselves to work harder than everyone else around them. And as soon as you get close to how hard they're working, they're going to go to that next level. 
Now, this is really good to lay out all of those because I'm sure many of us are, were a mixture of these things. Maybe we, you know, primarily identify with one of them. But um, if you have imposter syndrome at all, which you just already said, Jessica, that most people do, what was the percentage of people or let's just say even musicians and artists? Um, actually, I said it was 80% earlier, but now looking at my notes, it was 87%. And that's even higher, too. In, in musicians, it's also higher in um, marginalized communities like LGBTQ, um, minorities, women. We feel it even more because we have to keep up with what everybody's doing. Wow. So, okay, so you've went through the different types of imposter syndrome. And then in your presentation, uh, and you talk about how this how this affects, right? How this affects your programs or how this affects the students. Is that sort of where this leads into next or does it lead into a different, uh, do you guys go into a different section? You kind of covered it already. You talked about, um, you know, why imposter syndrome is, is prevalent amongst music educators. Uh, that's kind of where we go next. Um, uh, Jessica addressed that a little bit. Um, there's other things. For example, you know, a lot of us who are doing this as a profession, we're top players in high school groups. We auditioned and made it into college uh, studios or ensembles. Uh, we graduated from college, got a job in music. None of that's easy to do. Um, we all know people who, who auditioned and didn't make it or had to audition a couple of times. We all know people who, who got partway through and either music history or music theory or one of those classes is, that likes to get um, people going into this field uh, tripped up a little bit, got them. Um, so we made it through all that stuff. Um, so so we're, we are high achievers if we got this far. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is that your successes and failures are on display. Um, not only do you get to see your failures, you get to see other people's successes. And we don't always get to see what's behind the curtain to get them there and what they went through, what failures they went through to get there. We just see their successes, and then you, uh, you, you compare your failures to that. Um, you know, and uh, praise and punishment are triggers of imposter syndrome, too. So, you know, getting a one or getting a three at festival could, could trigger that in some people. Um, new endeavors can trigger it. Uh, you know, as, as teachers, we're constantly looking for the best ways to teach concepts concepts to our students. Uh, pedagogy is constantly evolving. We learn more about how minds work. Kids evolve as they go on, and the things that work when we first started. I mean, Jessica and I have both been at this for about 20 years, and kids are different now than they were when we started, and they're going to be different 10 years from now uh, when I'm getting closer to retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, so things change. High-pressure environments. I mean, you're giving a bunch of middle school kids instruments and expecting them to go out and do a performance. It's pretty high pressure Mm -hmm. uh, because you can never predict what they're going to do. What are some things that you do as teachers to help alleviate that pressure for your students? I use humor a lot. Um, If you know me outside of teaching, I'm kind of a sarcastic, funny person, and I bring that into my teaching like if we do a recording, our very first recording to just check and see how we're doing, um, I always say to the kids, well, nobody fell off their chair. Nobody got their <laughs> instrument stuck up their nose and nobody died. Right. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, so that's the bar that we've set for ourselves. And then we'll work on getting better. And the next time we record, maybe we'll we'll just move the, the bar a little higher. And I, the kids respond to that because they kind of realize it's okay to make mistakes. And part of that is of imposter syndrome in education is just 
the the mindset of perfection. And that's not always something that kids can achieve because not every kid is your straight A student, your top athlete, your top musician. So you've got to try to find a way to make it welcome for all of them. And we have a we have a saying in my room: better today than yesterday, better tomorrow than today. Uh, the kids know it. We say it almost every day. When you walk into my classroom, painted over the door, it says "better today than yesterday." When you leave over the door, it says "better tomorrow than today." Mm-hmm. Uh, at our football games, the announcer comes on and says, "Hey, band," and he'll say "better today," and the kids yell back "yesterday." I mean, it's 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 the mindset we have here, and. For every kid, that's a different thing, and I help them understand that. So the advanced kids, you know, the kids who work have worked hard in the past and are playing at a higher level are a little more patient with the kids. As long as they're showing improvement and trying to be better, that helps those kids. And then it helps the kids who might feel like they're behind the more advanced players, uh, realizing, hey, I've made this growth, and they, they, re- they reward each other's success that way by recognizing that it's different for every kid. You know, there's end goals they all want to meet, but as long as they're better tomorrow. Uh, We do something in my program that I stole from my fraternity, Delta Omicron. We used to do this at the end of every meeting, and I do this every Thursday in class. We call it the unsung hero. And I just have a Google form that kids can have access to all school year, and I make it cheesy. I'll play like uh, Mariah Carey's hero over the speakers and the kids will get their phones out and turn on their flashlights. And then I'll read uh, this that week's submission and the kids can choose to say that they're the ones that submitted that nice thing about somebody or they can leave it totally anonymous. Most of them leave it anonymous, but it's really fun to see what kinds of things they bring out in each other. And it's most of the time, I would say 90% of the time, it has nothing to do with music. Uh, 90% of the time it has to do with what kind of people they are. And that's really the thing that we need to keep in mind is that we teach kids music. We don't teach music to kids. Mm, thank you for saying that. Yeah, these are both great ideas. I just, I, I love how your approach is. They're both wonderful and you have different things. You just offered so many um, valuable suggestions. And um, I wanted to ask earlier How do you think the explosion of social media has affected imposter syndrome for both teachers and for students? Well, it makes people's successes more uh, visible. I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody's nobody's posting their failures. They post other people's failures. You see all the skateboard videos where they crash and burn or whatever. (laughs) But, you know, for the most part, people are trying to show their best selves on Instagram, TikTok, whatever else. Hey, look at this dance I can do. But they don't show the number of times they failed trying to do it before they posted it. You know, they, people see this immediate gratification of success, and it's really hard uh, for kids to understand that, I think. Jessica, you were saying that in the uh, districts you teach, you have diversity in the resources, right? You have different schools achieving different levels of things. So it's almost like with social media, your district expands to the whole world. Like you're seeing this mm-hmm. this school across the world, and you feel like it's right next door to you, and you're having to compete with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a uh, Trevor City is um, about 90 minutes down the road from us, and that's the big city in our area. And they have because it's in a big city and this is nothing against any of the Trevor City directors or um, or their programs, but they have the resources available. I have one stoplight, a McDonald's, 
Um, and then a couple other little things uh, in my town, and that's it. So if kids want to get music lessons, they have to go to Traverse City to experience those. So you have to work with what you've got. And that's something that isn't always expressed to people in college music programs. You just kind of feel, and I know I felt this way when I graduated, when I grad- walked off the stage, I'm like, all right, bring it on. I'm going to be the best teacher. And then my first week of school was like, I know nothing. <laughs> so, and, and that's, I, and I think that's, that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of teachers. And one of the ways you can fix that is to surround people, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. That's why I did a project with Jessica. What did you say, Erin? I said that's why I did this project with Jessica. Oh, I don't know no. about that. See, here's my imposter syndrome coming out. So. But we have some fantastic teachers in our area, and sometimes they're sitting on stage with 10 kids in their ensemble, but they're some of the best educators in the state, and you just pick people's brains as much as you can to feel like you can succeed in this in this job. How can you reframe the idea that, okay, looking at Traverse City, because we do know it's such that like this mecca of of talent and skill, and and we celebrate that, you know, those those choirs get to perform at conferences and people are always so excited. And um, so how do we, you know, we're, we're happy for communities like that, that have the resources and are doing amazing things. But then how do we look at each of our, you know, the places that maybe don't have the resources and reframe in such a way that it's okay that that's happening there, but it's still important what I'm doing here. And how, how do we, how can we reframe that? There's a couple of ways um, I look at it here. Uh, first of all, um, you know, I, my community is decent sized and I've got a, a pretty good sized program here. Um, we've rebuilt and, uh, but, you know, there's some resources that we're lacking and we're working towards it. Um, and the kids will look at the other schools and say, why don't we have this? Why don't we have that? And my answer is, if you want that, here's what we need to do. And it's not a one-day program. It's not a, it's not a one-week thing. It might not even happen while you're in high school that we get to that point. But here's how we're on the right track. Here's where we came from. Here's how we're better today than we were yesterday. Um, you know, we, we have what we have. You know, Jessica and I are, are both in programs where we're the only, uh, she's the only music teacher at her school, if I'm not mistaken, correct? We have an elementary school, uh, elementary oh. music teacher, but uh, the kids get me in middle and high school. So, okay. and I have, I have all the bands from 712. Um, there's somebody else who does the sixth grade band. Uh, she's awesome. She does a great job getting them started, Liz Olson. Um, and then Garrett Glass helps her with those. And then after that, it's just me. Um, you know, so we look at it and we're like, you know, I would love to do this ensemble and this ensemble and this ensemble with you guys, but there's only me. So let's prioritize. What do we want to do? Do we want to do steel drums and jazz? Do we want to do this? Do we want to do that? And, uh, we work from there. Um, and then, you know, just make them realize, you know, you can do, there's nothing different about you than these kids in these other schools. You can be just as good. There, you have to be a little more creative with your resources sometimes. We have a few private lesson teachers around here, but not a ton. Um, so I've had kids take lessons online. I've had kids just practice a little harder on their own. I've had kids just fly with unexcelled medi- mediocrity. But um, <laughs> they, they, just, uh, they just have to realize that if we want those things, you have to go out and get them. And sometimes some people have to work harder to get the things than others, you know. 
Well, I was just going to say, too, a lot of us come out of college music programs emulating the teachers that we've had. Mm. And the sooner that you can find the your voice, your personality in the classroom, the less that's going to lessen the imposter syndrome because you don't want to try to be like the Steve Burns or the Jack Williamson or the Nina Nash Robinsons of the world. You want to just be you because that's what the kids are going to respond to. Mm. And we all know the kids can smell fake a mile away, too. Thank you for saying that. I know you brought that up in your presentation and and someone was actually, uh, it was a a guy, he, he brought up, well, what if I'm not, and you'll have to help me remember this correctly, but he was like, well, what if I'm not the fun teacher? Or I'm not the, is that what he asked? He was like talking about, I'm not a certain type of personality or could you remind me what that conversation was? If I remember correctly, he asked, like, he seemed, he wasn't the kind that was into, like, doing, like, the extra games and everything else. He just, he wanted to go there and make music with the students. And, and um, you know, I mentioned that I struggle with that, too. I mean, I think the music part, making music with those kids is, like, the best thing in the world. And so I don't need to do that extra stuff. But some of the kids need that. So I go to the students that are good, have gone to the leadership conferences. I go to the students who have been through like scouts or other things where they do these kind of icebreaker things or these games. And I have them help me set all that up so that it works. Um, you know, and it comes from a more real place. Um, when I taught elementary school, I never used the, the voice, you know, I never used a, a sing songy, Hey kids, today we're gonna, cause it's just not my voice. I talk to the kids like they're little human beings um, in the voice that I would use for other human beings. And, and they seem to respect that more. And, you know, we still, it wasn't like I taught, like it was a junior version of a choir or a band class. Uh, you know, we still did the games and we, we used Kodai and Orf and all these other techniques, but I used my voice with it. And that makes a big difference to even the smallest of kids. So we, we talked about the different kinds of imposter syndrome that exist, and we talked about why imposter syndrome exists, um, specifically related to being musicians and music teachers. So what is the next, the, the next thing that we should know? What to do about it. So how do we, yeah, how do we get better at this? How do we, how do we survive, Aaron <laughs> and Jessica? How do we, <laughs> right? Because a lot of teachers <laughs> feel like I'm surviving, you know? And so, yeah, so, so how can we get better? Well, the first thing is recognize it. I mean, acknowledge, hey, I feel like it sometimes. Um, if you don't recognize that you have a problem, you can't solve it. And some people will try to put the onus on the students. Well, it's the student's fault. It's not my fault. But that's not a healthy attitude to take because that's going to lead you to burnout. And that honestly, that'll create some animosity when you're on the podium in front of the kids. And that's not healthy for building community in your group either. And then, um, you know, recognize what triggers you to feel that way. Recognize the things that are... Um, are an issue for you that make you feel like you could be doing better, make you feel like you're not good enough, and and then uh, learn to address those and be better at those things. I was going to say that at the summer conference, it was the first time I'd ever been able to say this this particular way. And actually, in my in my previous interview with Eric Cadena, I brought this up, and this is the whole um, magic. There, there's only it's either magic or it's mediocre. And I had never thought about that that way until I was sitting in your presentation. And it has really helped me. Like you said, Erin, you have to recognize it. 
right? You have to go, okay, well, what, you know, and, and Jessica, you're able to identify, you're the, sol- right, the soloist and the perfectionist. So mm-hmm. knowing where we fit, knowing what categories we fit into um, and, uh, and where we struggle is the first step to knowing, okay, now, you know, how do I fix that? Um, so I just, yeah, I wanted to bring that up because that has been really helpful for me to just know, yeah, I mean, I'm either like, it's going to be magic or it's going to be mediocre and there's nothing in the middle. And for the kids, I'm, you reminded me during your presentation that the kids perceive things differently than we do. Well, and, and I think I mentioned to you there that the magic of your first performance is way different from your current ones, even though you're probably giving better performances now with your students than you did when you first started teaching because you know more, you know how to help them better. Um, But that magic of that first performance, I'll never forget when I was teaching choir in Harrison, the first time I gave the concert, um, how, how just tweaked I was afterwards. It was, it was a a performer's high and it was so much fun. And then as you go on, I, I know I've given better performances than that first one. I'm a much better teacher. Um, that I was then I can, I, I know what I'm doing better than I did then. And, and the kids respond better than they did then. I had great kids there. I mean, nothing against them. They, they were awesome. I just, I know I've done better performances since then, but that was such a great feeling. Cause it was like the first one I had nothing to compare it to. So you start comparing all these performances against the most recent ones. The magic might not be there as much, but it was there for the audience. It was there for the kids about 99% of the time. If you get done with a performance and you didn't feel it, went very well you're going to go out into the lobby of your auditorium or your gym or your cafeteria or wherever you perform and the parents and the students are beside themselves with how much they enjoyed it so it was magic for somebody even if it wasn't for you (laughs) yeah that's so important to remember jessica do you have anything you want to add to that um i always tell my students that we're one of the only classes in the school where the teacher shares in the the actual thing compared to their other classes. The teacher doesn't take the math test with them or helps or writes the essay with them, but we get to be roll up our sleeves and be in the trenches with them. And honestly, that's why many of us go into this profession is because we want to continue making music. And sometimes you just have to turn your ears off <laughs> and just let the, the joy you see on the faces in front of you wash over you. And that makes it worthwhile. I mean, that's what recordings are for. We can listen to those later. So just watching the kids experience that joy. One of my favorite concerts I do every year is the Christmas concert with my fifth grade band. Mm-hmm. They're playing whole notes and they don't I mean they sound like a fifth grade band but watching those little kids come off the stage and go that was amazing that's what (laughs) makes it worthwhile Mm. it's not that they forgot to hold their trumpet the correct way or they counted a rest incorrectly it's just the joy you see on the faces is really what it's all about well and doesn't it make a difference with the way the teacher approaches it too I mean we can control the environment to a huge degree so if we're excited for them. And you're like, you did so great with those whole notes, you know, and I'm so proud of you that, I mean, that changes everything as opposed to uh, a person who's like, well, that wasn't good enough, you know, or we need, well, let's move on to the next thing because that's over and they don't take time to celebrate it. Um, Something that I do with my singers is it's usually, it usually happens in the dress rehearsal um, is I say to them, okay, we're going to work, you know, we're going to try to clean all this up as best as we can. But when we walk out for the performance, my judge hat comes off and everything you do is wonderful. 
And I mean, it, you know, in reality, is it like, well, is that if you're putting it against like a like a logical scale, is everything going to be wonderful? What well, depends on what you think wonderful is? Is wonderful coming out on stage and enjoying the fruits of your labor and being together, even if ever, you know, if they didn't sing every note or uh, rhythm correctly or whatever? But I always make sure my singers know that that we're going to bust butt when we're rehearsing. But when we get to the performance, I'm not going to be up here judging you. I'm going to be up here looking into your faces and just being so appreciative of the work you've done to get here. And um, so I, I'm so grateful that we have teachers like you both in the state that have such a loving approach and are able to step back and say, hey, you did a great job and to appreciate those, those moments. And then the next day we say, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's yeah. right. That, it's, well, it's all balance, right? And like you said, what, Jessica, did you make a joke about the control, like band directors in control or? <laughs> band director is Latin for control freak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so balance, balance, knowing, knowing going in that that's a thing is, is really helpful. So, yeah. So, okay. So we talked about um, some strategies to help with imposter syndrome. Did, do we cover all of them or do you have more? Yeah, one more really important one is that um, you need to know your strengths and weaknesses, acknowledge your strengths, recognize what you do well in your job, musically, educationally, interpersonally, um, different people have different strengths and, and find yours and, and celebrate those. And then don't be afraid to work on your weaknesses. You know, just because you're better than you think you are doesn't mean you don't have things to work on. And that's that's a tough balancing act there to, to be like, okay, I'm good at this, I'm bad at this, what can I do better? How, how am I going to do this? How am I going to use my strengths to continue uh, to grow as a, as a teacher and help my kids continue to grow as musicians and human beings? Do you ever acknowledge your weaknesses in front of your students? Every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Every single day. I just had band camp last week, and one of the things that the kids kept calling me, I'm terrible at math. So getting the set numbers correct and the steps, I would say the numbers wrong. And then the kids would be like, no, it's this. And I'm like, yep, you're right. And just showing them how to make a mistake is so important because going back to that social media thing that you talked about earlier, kids see perfection on social media, so they think they need to achieve that. But we as the adults in the room need to show vulnerability when we make mistakes. And that isn't always prevalent on what the kids are intaking on their phones. Mm. So that humility is, I mean, you're teaching them so much more than just, I mean, yes, you're owning your weaknesses, but you're also teaching them how to be humble about not being perfect. You know, like you, if you laugh about it and go, oh, you guys were right. Like I'll say to my singers, I was just checking to make sure you knew what key we were in or whatever, you know, and they all laugh about it. And so you're, I feel like those things uh, teach the people around us so much more about just how to accept that we aren't perfect and to because we because we aren't. But it is really hard when we grow up in that culture where we're having to meet a certain bar. And then and then we get we arrive at our jobs and then we have to sort of like find a way to dial back and say, I've arrived, you know, to this job that I've been working for. But now I, I have to be able to relax or, or step back a moment to say, I've worked hard and this is what I'm coming in with. This is what I, you know, have to work with. This is what I need to work on. And that can be really hard because we were steeped in that culture of competitiveness the whole time getting to the point that we were at. And have have you um please remind me, worked in uh you've worked in different districts, right? Like Aaron, you mentioned you worked at Harrison, right? Uh yep. I taught in Harrison and I taught in Detour Village, Drummond Island, uh Pelston and Gaylord. 
Okay, so you've been a couple different places. And Jessica? And I've taught in Petoskey, um, Mancelona, and now this is my third year in East Jordan. So do you think that working in different districts has helped uh, give you perspective about who you are as a teacher, as opposed to maybe being in one district and and not saying there are wonderful things about getting to be in one district and building that community over many years, but specifically related to imposter syndrome and having perspective about what kind of students you're working with, what kind of resources you have. Do you feel that working different districts has, has helped you with imposter syndrome or at least recognizing some things that perhaps other teachers do not? I think so, because I've taught in uh, a district that has a lot of affluence. I've taught in a district that had, and that where I spent most of my career, I was, had, didn't have hardly any affluence. And, and then I've taught kind of in the middle of the road. And I grew up in a middle of the road community and just noticing the difference. I think if I would have taught in just totally an affluent area or a not affluent area, I don't think I would have had the perspective that I do now in being able to engage with all different types of people. And I think that helps bring all the kids to the programs that I teach in. Yeah, I've never really thought about that before, but I, yeah, it has. I mean, same thing as Jessica, I've taught, especially school size. Demographics have been pretty similar at a lot of my schools, but uh, size-wise, um, I've gone from a school where we had, we would graduate anywhere from 10 to 20 kids a year up to where I'm at now, where we graduate around two to 250 every year. Um, and it's uh, just being able to get the number of kids in your seat based on the percentage game. Um, you know, in your classroom so that you can help them, you can work with them, you can create something amazing is, is a big difference. Um, but, you know, at the small schools, I learned that, that I think that's where I learned mostly that these are the kids who are here for you. These are the kids who are here to make the music. How can you be there for them and, and help them be as, success, as successful as possible? So what other things do you think are important to mention about imposter syndrome? Is there anything else that... Um, and actually, let me back up because I had a different question. And this this might be a tough question, and you might not be able to answer it right away. But do you have a personal experience or story related to this, like sort of maybe an aha moment or, or a challenging moment in your life where you had to reevaluate the way that you were approaching um, your success as a teacher? And did you ever hit a low point or have this... Um, epiphany? Do you have any stories that you can share with us about that? Education is a weird job, especially if you teach secondary education, because you don't know the impact you have on the kids until they've grown up. (laughs) Um, My husband and my husband is an educator. He teaches second grade and we went out to dinner uh, last week and one of the waitresses at the restaurant, he had had all of their kids. And according to my husband, they were challenging kids to teach. And he felt like he didn't make a huge impact on them when he was in their class, when they were in his classroom. But these kids are all grown up now. They're adults, you know, doing, having their careers, having families. And the the waitress told my husband, you were their favorite teacher, all three of my kids out of all the teachers they had. And he just, mm. and he had that exchange. And I just kind of was a, a, 
uh, observer to this and just watching him go, oh, wow, I can't believe that I've made a difference to these kids. That's that's so in- insane. And I think all three of us can have, have stories about that as well. They just the really challenging kids, they come back when they're like 25 or 26 and they say, you know, you made my life better. You were one of my favorite teachers. Meanwhile, when you had them in your classroom, you were just pulling your hair out trying to get them to to function. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have like one aha. I, I think I have more of like just a whole string of events in, in, in my career and, and noticing that there's more positive than negative out there. Uh, just like with people, you know, people say, oh, it must be tough dealing with kids. They're just like human beings, most of them are pretty decent. You know, sometimes the ones that aren't very decent are the loudest. And so it seems like they're doing more or there's more of that out there than there. But, you know, if you look at the world, you know, I, I'm not super rose-colored glasses. I'm a realist, but I think realistically, people are pretty decent. The world's not a bad place to be. I get to make music with people every single day, and if I look at it through that attitude and connect all those positives together, I just try and keep making more of them and, and connecting them. Is there any question you wish I would have asked you or anything that you would have liked to talk about related to imposter syndrome that you have not gotten to talk about yet? One thing we didn't say that I think is really important is that music is a collaboration and not competition. Uh, when music is done correctly, you know, I mean, obviously there's there's auditions to get into ensembles. If you want to be in, in the state honors band, you should probably be able to play your instrument pretty well, and, and I get all that. Um, but music, and, and the way I address festivals, for example, for my kids, is that we go there, we get to hear other bands do what they do well. We get to hear... You know, we get to perform with our band and show them what we do well. And it's not about, hey, we were better than so-and-so or they were better than us. It's about, were we better than we were before? I keep going back to that, but were we better than we were yesterday? And what can we learn from these other groups? What did they do well? What do we like that they did? Um, You know, I love being in sight reading room at festival when I'm working so that I can watch how other people attack that very difficult feat. Um, I like watching other people work with their bands in the warm-up room. I, I, I get so much out of watching that. Um, and, and it is a collaboration. If anybody ever wants to come into my classroom, my door's open, whether I have something to share with them or they have something to teach me. I love that. It's, it, and that's the way it should be. And as soon as we get that competition side out of it, um, and once again, I am all for, like, if you're on the competitive marching band circuit, if you have show choirs that compete, any of those other things, those are great, fun things to do. But you're not going to have that without good collaboration between you and your colleagues, and you're not going to have that without good collaboration with you and your students. And music is such a subjective thing. I mean, art in general is just a subjective thing. You can go to a museum and look at the Mona Lisa, for example, and you're just amazed by this artistic style. And then the person next to you is like, eh, that's okay. I've seen better. And it's, and the same thing with music, you can go, go to a performance and hear amazing music. And the person next to you is like, eh, it was all right. And I think that's where we get, feel that imposter syndrome the most, because we want to emotionally impact everybody that we come across. And that's not always the case because everybody's different. My mom gave me some really good advice. What you just said reminded me that my mom gave me some really good advice about performance anxiety when I was young. And she said, imagine that in any room, there are going to be three kinds of people. There are going to be people that like what you do. Like you said, Jessica, right? That are like, Mm -hmm. that's the great, that's amazing, right? Right. So people that like what you do, people that 
don't like what you do and people that don't care either way. They don't really have any strong opinion. And for whatever reason, that has been really helpful for me because my goal in anything that I do, especially if I if I'm going to do something that is scary or um, very or challenging, that it is never to please every person in the room. And uh, so I, I don't know when I say that to you. How do you think that that can be helpful as a mindset? Because I've been trying to find the right words for it. Why that actually makes me feel better as opposed to imagining everybody in the room, you know, is is even if they aren't, that I'm imagining everybody likes it. Or maybe I maybe I am. I don't know. Or I'm just so comfortable with that piece of advice that I just I don't even focus on groups two and three. Well, and that's the important part right there is not focusing on the groups two and three. Uh, Actually, I like to focus on group three because if I can make them care, whether they like it or hate it, if I can make them engage, that's always fun. And I do that with my students too, you know. Um, Dad humor, for example, when I'm talking to my students, I tell them all the time, this joke is not for you necessarily. It's for me and it made me laugh. And if a couple of you come along, great. But it engages them and it either gets them to groan, but they do internalize whatever I was talking about with that terrible pun I just gave. Um, you know, or the meme on the board every day. Jessica and I share a love of memes. Um, mm-hmm. If you saw our presentation, you know that. <laughs> um, yes, yes. So, uh, you know, it, just little things like that to engage different people. And you know you're not going to win everybody over. Um, you know, when a student decides that they're not going to stick with, with band at my school, my answer to them is always the same. You know, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, I'd love to work with you some more. Your spot is always there. Come back and see me when you're ready. Uh, and whether it's sometimes, you know, at the high school, sometimes they've got classes they have to finish, or at middle school they just decide, you know, I'm too busy and I need to go a different direction, or, you know, I'm like, I'll work with your schedule when you miss it, when you want to come back. And I've had quite a few come back, and I've had a lot leave, but it's never with bad blood. It's never, you know, and it's, you're not going to reach them all. It's not going to be for everybody. But engage them as much as you can. And I still have kids that will, and even alumni that I'm Facebook friends with that didn't make it all the way through my program, but were still kids that felt a connection to me. And I think it's, especially at the school age, it's important to find adults that you connect with, even if the thing you do isn't their thing. Speaking of connection, how can people get a hold of you? What is the best way for people to get a hold of you if they want to talk more about this or they just want to connect with educators who understand this? Is there a way to put a link in your podcast? Well, it's funny you bring that up because I was just thinking about the website that has been, you know, a goal. Since this isn't my job, this is like a hobby I do. Right. Um, but I, my my dream, my goal is to have a website up where I can put links and stuff like that. Um, so I, I currently, everything is just through audio right now, I think. Well, actually, I wonder if in the um, description I can put a link. So let me let me think if about you can, that. If you can yeah. do that, um, I can send you the link to our, our presentation, and it's got our contact information in there. Uh, otherwise, um, you know, I work at Gaylord. Jessica works at East Jordan, and we have emails that you can go through the school websites and find us that way. Um, I'm, I'm also, we're both on Facebook too. Just our person, just find our names. Um, and I'm on Instagram at the musical runner runner is spelled R U N R and it's all one word. Mm. So you can engage with me over there too. That'd be great. That's awesome. I have Instagram. I rarely use it. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm old enough that Facebook's my thing. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this 
very important thing that so many of us deal with. It, right? Do you say 80, 87% of, of artists? 87%. Whew. That's 70% of, of the general population. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are not alone out there if you've ever experienced this. This is a very, very prominent thing. And we have to practice recognizing when we're feeling that and then and then how do we turn that around um is there anything that you would like to end with thanks for having us megan yeah thank you for having us on your podcast this is very cool yay well this was so fun to be with you and um yeah i and i learned so much watching your presentation and i i learned even more just speaking with you today you're both wonderful human beings and teachers and i feel very blessed to know both of you so uh Thank you so much for for this time together. Thank you. Thank you you for listening to Sing Coach Conduct. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact Megan Ferrison on Facebook or Instagram or by emailing thesingingconductor at gmail.com.